The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Happy New Year. Thanks to Kyoko Katayama, who was here last week, subbing for me. It's nice to be able to hand it over to her. I understand that it was a nice talk. So we've been uh, looking at Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, for a long time now. And uh, chapter 13 is what we, I looked at at least this week. And it's sort of a nice chapter to begin the new year with, an overview of the path. And one of the easy ways to think about this practice that we do in an integrated way, including all parts of our life, is the thought of bringing mindfulness to three places. We're bringing mindfulness to our interactions in the world, our relationships. And it makes so much sense, doesn't it, that, I mean, this world of speaking to other people and interacting with the different communities that we're involved in, families and friends, so much suffering gets set in motion because we're not attentive, you know, and we're uh, misreading or misperceiving the situation and acting based on those misperceptions. Just think about how much suffering just in our own lives has been set in motion because of what we said or didn't say, what we did or didn't do. And it wasn't that we were trying to set in motion a mess, but that's what we end up doing a lot of the time. So, it makes sense that we'd like to be not tight. You know, a lot of times we think being mindfulness is being tight. Well, being tight's not going to help. But what does help is to be fully present so that the heart, the mind is sensitive. It's connecting. It's, in a sense, reading how it is. How is it that we're going to be skillful if we're not there? You know, it's not really possible for us to be skillful as we negotiate our relationships and duties and responsibilities based on some theory about how we should be in the world. You know, a lot of us, just generally, that's how we operate. We have a belief system, a value system, and in a way we, we paint a picture in our mind of who we are and how we're going to be. And then we operate, according, it's like a business plan. You know, we operate according to that business plan. But life just, you know, you can't predict, you can't model life. The only way to be skillful is actually to be there, to be sensitive. And if we're really there, then it, then there is a possibility, because if we're fully present, one of the things we're fully present with are the different motivations that are operating in the moment. And we start to get a sense of what kind of intentions or motivations are worthy of sort of being carried out into speech or into action in the world, and what sort of motivations and intentions would be better to leave alone, you know. I can have a despicable motivation or intention, but it isn't a problem until I start getting identified with it and acting it out. In a way, we can't help 
I mean, a lot of our, uh, a lot of what arises for us, these you know, unwholesome or negative emotions, negative intentions, it's not even our fault. It's just our conditioning, our habit energy. So things will trigger it. We'll be walking and something will happen. And so we're not, in a sense, responsible for those impulses, you know, to hit somebody or to take something that's not ours. But if we get identified with it and then act on it, then there will be consequences. But if it just arises and we are mindful, oh, that's just an impulse, that's compulsion, and we don't act on it, well then we've actually, not only are we being skillful, but we've learned something, which is that's not so personal. When that motivation, that impulse or compulsion arises, I don't need to take it personally. I don't need to believe it's me that has to do that right now. Just this alone would be a great practice. If all we did was just be mindful as we move through the day and all the interactions, and as we did that, there was this kind of trust and uh, even devotion, a kind of love for the sensitivity of the heart, of the mind. So it's like we're leading or moving through life, but we're leading with the sensitivity, this great, raw, tender sensitivity. And we didn't see it as a problem, but like our great protection, our protector, really. You know, we need that sensitivity, that mindful sensitivity, in order to know how to be, how to respond in each moment. And we don't know ahead of time until we're, you know, that maybe some of you, I don't know if it's still out there, the Stranger in a Strange Land, a science fiction book from who knows when, way back, maybe the 60s. And they have this word grok. You know, you really get it. Maybe it's even in the dictionary now, grok. And that's sort of like, in order to grok the situation, in order to get it, we have to be mindful. We have to be awake. And you can't have an agenda or expectations and be awake. If we have an agenda or expectations, the mind's projecting that on the moment. It's interesting that morality, and that's really the area of practice I'm talking about now, morality or ethical conduct, it doesn't depend on a set of do's and don'ts as much as it depends on this basic wisdom of reading or connecting with the situation so the mind, the heart can read it. Like, read what is it that might be skillful, what is it that might be unskillful that's in the mix right now. You know, because it's not like we have just one intention. There are many intentions, many possibilities, many motivations that are bubbling around, ready to be acted on. So why are some chosen and some not chosen? Well, if we're not mindful, we just tend to do what's whatever the biggest motivation, the biggest, loudest intention is. The mind gets identified with it and just gets swept away, acts it out. But when we're mindful, we can be aware of a very strong compulsion, but because we're mindful of it, we know well, that's just a very strong compulsion. And we have this freedom not to act on it, but to look around and see if there's any other motivations, intentions, tendencies that look a little better, more skillful, more useful. 
So in a way, we're blind if we're not mindful. We just get swept along by the strongest motivations, intentions that are there. And a lot of the strong ones have to do with greed and aversion. I mean, that's generally what's governing our minds a lot of the time. But mindfulness allows us to see that, to see that that wouldn't be good. Don't want to do that. Don't want to act on that. And we can keep seeing and letting go, seeing and letting go until there arises some intention, some motivation that seems to be coming from a different kind of place, like a place of compassion or kindness or curiosity. So that seems harmless, that seems useful, and we can act on that, lead our life out of that. So this is a powerful place in practice, and it creates a lot of harmony, steadiness, in this world of relationships. That's really its value. And then there's all kinds of repercussions, because when our life of a relationship starts to work better, it's just so much easier to look at the mind, which is the next part of practice. We bring mindfulness to the mind itself. In the same way that a parent is mindful of her children, his children, and uh, careful like when they're doing something dangerous to sort of redirect them, even even if it's sometimes harsh. There was a story in the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha, where the one of the kings at the time was asking the Buddha about, uh, you know, a time that he had harmed somebody by saying some words. And the Buddha said, well, what if your daughter, the princess, had got a stick caught in her throat? What would you do? The king said, well, I'd, you know, reach my hand in and pull it out. Even if it ended up cutting her, I'd get that stick out of her mouth, no matter what. And the Buddha said something like, well, just so. You know, if... Sometimes I'll say something, it might hurt somebody, but the, the intention isn't to harm the person, the intention is to be helpful. But sometimes in being helpful, it hurts. A lot of the lessons, you know, hurt sometimes, but that doesn't mean it was a bad thing. So in the same way with, you know, working with our mind, we have to have that same attitude. We have to take responsibility for the mind. It's not safe for us to just let the mind do what it wants to do. Maybe you've noticed that in your life. When you just let your mind go where it wants to go, dwell on what it wants to dwell on, fantasize what it wants to fantasize about, lust what it wants to lust after, we get into trouble. Because what the mind does, eventually the body's going to follow. And I've mentioned this, this is, I've said a number of times, that this example where I'll notice, like, a particular thing's going on between me and my wife, and, you know, I'll notice I want to say something, but I know better, like, don't say that. But, but it feels safe to just let the mind, you know, the mind dwell on it, like, imagining saying it or wanting to say it. But if I do that, if I let the mind dwell on it, then, at a moment of weakness, when I'm not so mindful, I'll just end up saying exactly what I know I shouldn't have said. I'm sure you've seen yourself do that. Because there are consequences to what we let the mind do. In the same way, there are consequences to what parents let their children do. So parents don't let their children do whatever the children want to do. Because some things aren't good for kids to do. So the parents intervene. And we have to have that same relationship 
with the mind. We have to be mindful of the mind. We have to know what the mind is doing. In the same way that we want to know what we're doing out in our relationships with each other and the world and the communities, family that we're involved in, we also want to be aware of what the mind is doing. It would be as if any of our Dharma friends could call us on the cell phone and say, what's your mind doing? And we wouldn't have to look. We'd already know what the mind is doing because we're attentive in the same way that a mother of a you know, an 18-month-year-old would be attentive with what the kid's doing. What is that kid doing? Where is she or he, you know? Is there anything that I left out that I shouldn't have left out? So, at first, this feels a little, you know, it can feel a little claustrophobic to be mindful of the mind. People get a little disturbed when, they, when they're asked, like in a set, you know, it's one thing to be aware of the breath, coming in and out. But then as we give instructions, as we take up instructions to be mindful of the mind, it can feel a little weird, like we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be looking at the mind. It's like that scene in from The Wizard of Oz. You know, pay no attention to the guy behind the curtain. It's like we're, we've been taught in a way that we shouldn't be looking at the mind. It's like not appropriate. It's unseemly to be observing what the mind is doing. But it's just the opposite. It's the most important place to be interested in. What is the mind doing? Like, would it be appropriate right now just to know what the attitude is? And it's not even personal. I mean, you didn't decide, you know, at 7.45 today I want to have this mood or I want to have this attitude in the evening tonight. No. Whatever mood or attitude or whatever filters we're operating with right now, they're arising just due to particular causes and conditions. But it's totally appropriate for us to know what that is. Because it has all kinds of consequences. And to be oblivious of our mood is really, it's dangerous, literally dangerous, especially in the long term. And again, to be aware of the mood doesn't mean to hate ourselves. Hating the mood we're in is just a different mood, you know, called self-hatred. That's a particular mood, you know, where we're disgusted by ourselves. So it's not about being disgusted, it's not about being oblivious, it's about knowing it's like this now. The mood, the attitude, it's like this. The different qualities that are present, like, is the mind calm now, or is it agitated? Do we have a sort of expansive quality of consciousness, or a more narrow, contracted quality of consciousness right now? Is there contentment or discontentment in the mind? Is there a sort of buoyancy, lightness, or heaviness in the heart, in the mind? Is it busy or is it quiet? Again, all without judgment. It's just this integrity of of wanting to know, being interested in the mind. In the same way we're interested in the integrity of our relationships, you know, How is my relationship with my wife right now? Is it harmonious or disharmonious? How is my relationship with my job or with my family? Is there unfinished business, things that need to be addressed? Or is it pretty clean right now? It's the same way with the mind. So we're bringing mindfulness out into our world of relationships, 
We're being mindful of the qualities of the mind. What is the mind doing? What is the mind knowing? What sort of filters, views, qualities, or, or moods, rather, are present in the mind? And in both of these worlds, we're really emphasizing cause and effect. You know, as we're mindful of our world of relationships, we're just bowing down to our great teacher, which is cause and effect. We're learning cause and effect. And we're trusting it. We see, like, we see ourselves being stingy in the world in different ways. You know, we're having dinner with our friend or a partner. We cut the cake in half, you know. One piece is a little bigger than the other piece. You know, we just notice the stinginess. Or any way, you know, it's like uh, he or she wants to watch one program, you want to watch another program, you know, and, and how you might manipulate the situation. Or And again, just to, to be aware, just to take that in, because it's the awareness that changes everything. It isn't about needing to judge anything, just to be aware of what works. Does stinginess lead to happiness? And just to watch cause and effect in that way. Does neediness lead to happiness? Like cultivating neediness, acting on our neediness. Does that lead to happiness or not? In the same way with the mind. We're just observing cause and effect. When the mind dwells in this way, when the mind is reactive in this way, when the mind resists in this way, when the mind accepts, when the mind is interested, what are the effects of those qualities being present in the mind? Cause and effect. So, in this style of practice, cause and effect, which is really the way it is, that's what the present moment is. The present moment is just the display of cause and effect. Because life, inner life, external life, the whole shebang, it's just the movement of cause and effect. What in Buddhism we call Dhamma or Dharma, that's what we mean. We mean this level of reality, this flow, this unfolding of cause and effect. And that's our teacher. We are students of Dharma, the way it is, which is this natural, unceasing movement of cause and effect. And we're grateful students because it teaches us everything we need to know. If we submit to our teacher what it, what it has to teach us, we learn everything we need to learn. So we bring mindfulness to the world of relationships, and we're observing in terms of cause and effect. And not only in terms of our own actions, but everybody else's cause and effect. You know, we see somebody else being generous or being stingy. Somebody else being narrow, somebody else having an expanded mind out in the world as they're relating. And we observe the cause and effect. And we get the lessons from our own actions, from other people's actions. The whole world is teaching us how to suffer and how to be happy. And it's just a question of letting it in. And it's the same way in observing the mind and being mindful of the mind. You know, when we let the mind do this or direct the mind in this way, it's like, you know, a really simple example is, you know, maybe you were just a little bit more sincere, a little bit more persistent, and 
experimenting about bringing the attention to the body, bringing the attention to the breath in the body. And in doing that, you, in a, in a deeper way, you really let go of everything else the mind would be doing, worrying about Monday, thinking about that, remembering that, comparing, judging. But because you kept redirecting, bringing the attention back to the experience of sitting and the body breathing and being present with some continuity with the ordinary experience of sensation and breathing, you got to experience the effect of that. Well, what is it? What is the effect of letting go of the world of thinking about our to-do list, planning, judging, remembering, comparing, fantasizing? What is that effect? Oh, it's like this. Being with the body, being with the breath and the body, letting go of the world of thought of this and that, letting go of the diversity of the whole world of this and that, tomorrow, past, and future, is like this. And we notice the quality of the mind when it's simple, of just being with the breath. We notice how refreshing that is to have a vacation from the this and the that, the past and the future, the worries, the fears, the hopes. We notice what it's like to put it, put it all down. And then it doesn't matter that the Buddha says that it's useful to cultivate that continuity of attention with the present moment. We know directly from our own experience through cause and effect, observing cause and effect, how useful it is. And then the next sit you have tomorrow morning, you get up, motivated, sit down for 45 minutes, sit, you're sitting there, but for whatever reason your mind gets swept away and you're thinking about the to-do list and you're thinking about a relationship and you... But that's okay, as long as you observe cause and effect. And you notice, well, what is the effect of my mind being all over the place? Dwelling on this, proliferating about that. And you notice, oh, it feels like tied up in knots. The mind feels tight, it feels heavy. It feels like exhausted and it's only 7.30. And you just see, you don't need somebody to give a Dharma talk about, you know, when you let your mind worry it's exhausting because you know directly you observe blow by blow what cause and effect what that's like and so this is a very real intelligence it's in, in buddhist terms it's it's the beginning of real wisdom you wouldn't even the buddha doesn't even consider you a human being like human being is a uh, is an animal you know that is able to learn from cause and effect, able to observe in a reflective way that it's all cause and effect, and then uh, sort of live according to what's been learned. So until we have that degree of wisdom, we don't even earn the title of human being. You know, we might have a human body, but basically we're living like an animal, just out of instinct and habit. We haven't been reflective mindfully reflective of the cause and effect in the world, in the mind, to begin to have our life be modified by what we're learning from cause and effect. But once we do, then things begin to change. There's a process of purification that gets set in motion when we're uh, fortunate enough, because it Sometimes human beings' lives are so overwhelming by poverty or pain or 
you know, whatever it might be, war, that they get into that instinctual survival mode and there's no reflection about cause and effect. And a lot of the strategies may be quite unproductive, counterproductive even. But that's just how it is because when we're desperate, we're desperate. There's not a lot of clarity. There's not a lot of reflection. Sometimes maybe it works and sometimes it doesn't work. But there's no learning from cause and effect. So this is that purification and the result of that purification is harmony in our relationship with the world at large and calm and peacefulness in the mind because we've learned how not to agitate the mind and we've learned how to live in harmony with everybody else because we've, we've discovered like how it works. Kindness works. Being a jerk doesn't work. You know, a lot of people think being a jerk you get away with things but all you have to do is observe long term. Jerks don't get away with things. People who are mean, people who steal, people who are constantly manipulating are not happy people. If you observe people who are generous, who are kind, who know how to share, who know how to listen, those people are happy. It doesn't mean everything that happens to them is good. They still get sick. They die. But generally, they're happy in life more than the people who... And so, I could tell you this, your parents probably did tell you that, but when we see it directly, cause and effect, in our lives, then it's our own wisdom. Then we know it. And because nobody, is, nobody does things intentionally to screw up their lives. The stupid things we do, we do because we think, erroneously, that it's going to help us. You know, so when we act like a jerk, or when we are stingy, somehow we think it's going to lead to happiness. If we actually knew in our bones that it doesn't lead to happiness, we wouldn't be stingy. But somehow we think that by, you know, taking the bigger piece of pie, that we're going to be happy in any meaningful way. You know, it's silly when we look back at it with some distance, we go, oh, that's just crazy, I must have been crazy. But we do things like that all the time. You know, manipulating life in little ways. All of us. And then we agitate each other. And then we live in this disharmonious world that we live in because of that. Stocking up our guns or, you know, stocking up our wealth or whatever it is we're stocking up to defend ourselves from you, the rest of you out there. And we get this sort of weird, paranoid, tight place that we call exist together in. So that, even as powerful as that is to bring mindfulness to a world of relationships, mindfulness to our mind, and purify our life through the wisdom of cause and effect, all of that is setting up a more subtle and profound practice, which we could call being mindful of one's view, mindful of the mind's view. In a way, so it's not that different than the second where we're being mindful of the mind, but in this sense, mindful of the mind, we're just noticing the, the obvious qualities that are present, operating in the mind. Here, it's a more subtle part of the mind that we're being mindful of, this third piece, mindfulness of mind. And in the Buddhist path, the Buddhist description of the path, it's called wisdom. This is the, the end of the path called wisdom. So we have integrity or ethical conduct. We have... Samadhi, you know, being mindful of the 
quality or the steadiness of the mind. And then there's mindfulness of one's understanding. What understanding, what sort of underlying view is the mind operating with? And we're interested in that. And being really stable here, stability like harmony in our external life, calm and steadiness in the mind itself, in the heart itself, it's what allows us to understand this. You can't really do this work without a lot of steadiness that comes from a harmonious life and a calm mind. Because when our life is really smooth and we have harmonious relationships with our partner and our friends and our family and our community, people are trust us because we've been kind and share and take turns and follow the rules. And uh, we've learned how to operate our mind. <laughs> you know, we, we understand how to take care of it and how to keep it out of trouble and keep it calm and keep it clear and have an energy, brightness in the mind. So we sort of found the operating manual for the mind and we know how, to, how it works, how to take care of it, keep it healthy. Then we live our life with a certain degree of sensitivity that an ordinary person doesn't have. Because when things are stable, two things happen. There's a steadiness, but there's also a profound sensitivity. And it almost sounds sort of paradoxical that on the one hand there's real stability. I think you could even call it like solid. But on the other hand, there's a, a rawness, a, the purity that, that comes from that steadiness, the stillness of that steadiness, allows the mind to be much more sensitive, attuned. And then in that attunement, in that sensitivity, it begins to discern the underlying view. It's like an underlying uneasiness that even though my life is pretty harmonious and my mind is pretty calm, all of a sudden what's revealed is an underlying anxiety or disquiet that I was never aware of before. It's like when you discover the buzz of the refrigerator. You've been in the kitchen for two decades, that same refrigerator's been buzzing, and then one day it dawns in you, boy, that refrigerator's loud, you know? Or you, maybe you notice it because it went off, and you go, oh, that was loud. And it's the same thing. It's like an underlying uneasiness in the heart. Because whenever we construct the notion of being a somebody who wants to be happy, then we're in this, this sort of uneasy place. Because all of a sudden life now becomes something we have to manipulate in order to be happy. I want it this way, I don't want it that way. And this is getting at the area of view in different ways for each of us that they ultimately turn out to be the same way, we have constructed some notion around a sense of separation, a sense of somebody or something that's a part. There's this world, call it nature or the world, out there, and then there's me, right, who's trying to be happy. Is that, isn't that our normal view? Doesn't that feel right? There's me, and you can just get a sense of it right now, like the me living in this world, and me wants to be happy in this world. And 
one of the things this world keeps showing us, which we don't like to own, or we don't like to admit, which is nobody's in control of it. It's just stuff happening. And there's no center. You know, there's just like all these different things, these different patterns set in motion, people, climate, you know, it's all just happening. And yet, me is trying to find stability, safety, happiness in something where nobody's in control, nobody can control it. It's a setup, right? And that that uh, disalignment or that misalignment between the notion of me, the sense of a permanent something, somebody who wants to find ground, permanent ground of safety in this changing, insecure, uncertain, ephemeral, insubstantial world. It's a setup. And this is the view, that view begins to become more and more apparent when there's a lot of stability because we're living in a harmonious way and we've learned how to take care of the mind. Keep the mind out of trouble, keep the mind clear and bright and calm. Then we begin to see the basic uh, mistakenness of that view. We see it over and over again in hundreds, thousands of different sort of perspectives, how that view of separation just doesn't work. And it really eggs on the mind. The mind gets really curious, like, about that view. And the more the mind gets curious about the view, something strange happens, because all of a sudden the mind is looking at something for a long time it never, never knew was there. That view was always there, but it was never an object of awareness. We never, like how many times in your life have you actually observed as a phenomena the mind taking things personally? I mean, we all know that we take things personally, but how often have we observed it as something happening in the moment? Oh, this is the mind taking that person's comment personally. We always feel we are the person taking it personally. It feels personal. So we don't bother to observe that feeling as an object being known. But the more we get interested in that misalignment between our view of this is me trying to be happy in the world and how that doesn't work, you know, cause and effect again, right? The more we start to look at it, it changes our relationship. So all of a sudden, the view becomes something being known. It's something that's being observed. By what? Well, that's the great question, which we won't get into. But it is being known. That's a fact. It's something that now is being known by what we call the mind. Maybe the mind with a, a big M. So we're aware of that view of separation, the view of the me who wants to be happy. And we're more and more aware that it doesn't work that it always leads to attachment, it always leads to suffering, to stress, to a contracted view, contracted state of mind, to a mind that's burdened. And then, in that observing and the seeing very clearly that it doesn't work, at some point, without anybody doing anything, except the mind is seeing it as it is, the mind abandons that view or recognizes the moment without being influenced by that view. So it's a moment of the mind being in the moment, 
but not under the influence of that view of separation, that there's a me in this world trying to be happy. Now it's just the world, it's just nature, and there's nothing the mind is constructing that's outside of the movement of nature. It's just nature being nature. And of course, nature includes this mind and body, the personality, right? And it's just everything being what it is, without the mind doing that extra thing of constructing the sense of a somebody or something here, permanent, solid, that wants to be happy in this swirling, moving world. One of the discourses of the Buddha, he talks about it as a thorn embedded deep in the heart. And not having seen the thorn embedded deep in the heart is like a fish flopping around out of water. If you've ever gone fishing and done that, you know, uh, if you really notice that, it's not a very pleasant sight to see. Because we relate on some existential level. We relate to being a living creature, you know, dying and not wanting to die. And that's the, that's the image, that very provocative image is what the Buddha used about that thorn embedded deep in the heart. And not having seen the thorn, we're like a fish flopping around out of water. Because that's that person, the me, who wants to be happy, but never able to find that stable happiness because I'm looking for it in the wrong, with the wrong assumption. I'm looking for happiness for something that the mind constructed erroneously. The sense of a somebody who wants to be happy is an erroneous construction. It's like a habit. But once the habit has gotten set in motion, it creates a loop that keeps reinforcing the, happy, uh, the, the, ha- the habit. It's like, I want to be happy. I try to be happy. I don't succeed. So what am I going to do? I'm going to try to find happiness for that somebody who wants to be happy. But we never step outside and take a look. Is there a somebody who wants to be happy? And we always say, because here's a close look. Well, of course there is. That's me. So what are we basing that on? Well, we're basing it on the unhappiness we feel right now, like the insecurity or the uneasiness of the heart that I mentioned before. Everybody noticed that? Right? We do feel Unless we're totally transfixed by some pleasant experience where we get a little break, it's still there, but it's, we're distracted, we're so interested in the movie or the this or the that, that we temporarily forget it. But when we're more awake, more present, we'll feel that uneasiness. And we assume that that uneasiness means that there's a somebody who wants to be happy. But maybe that assumption is erroneous. It's just not true. So, if the more we look at the uneasiness, the more we see it's just uneasiness. It isn't a somebody who's uneasy. It's just uneasiness. And if we leave it alone, if we don't try to find happiness, but just leave the uneasiness alone, all of a sudden things change. And this is how we transform the view. So one view you can, and you just, like, trust cause and effect. So when you're operating with the view that there's a somebody here, me, who wants to be happy in the world, then just observe if that leads to any lasting permanent happiness. Or does it lead to the notion that there's a somebody who wants to be happy? That constant struggle, 
be happy. I'm betting you're going to find that what it leads to is the constant trying to be happy. When you try to be happy, that's what you get really good at, trying to be happy. When you abandon the notion that there's a somebody trying to be happy and you just let things be, what you get good at is letting things be. Letting nature be nature. Letting the natural movement of things be the natural movement of free. The free and natural movement of things becomes more and more the free and natural movement of things. And again, don't trust the words, but do your own investigation. And it doesn't matter if you're really trapped in the notion that there's a me trying to be happy. Just get interested in it. What does that lead to? Observe directly cause and effect, okay? Here it is. I'm at home. There's a strong sense of me trying to be happy. I'm bored. I'll go to the TV. <clears throat> and you just see. You know, just observe. Okay, there's a me trying to be happy. And, you you know, maybe it's a really especially good program. But then it ends. You know? And so even if we had 30 minutes of being relatively oblivious, involved, engaged in the story, and it ends, and we feel betrayed. It's like, I was lost, and I'm back, and there's that hungry beast who wants to be happy. And we need something else. Maybe there isn't anything else good on, but still we're desperate, so we watch something bad, and we're desperately trying to be entertained by it, but it's not working. It's like sliding down a well, you know, trying to make something work, and it's not working. Well, maybe if I have popcorn while I watch this bad show, or whatever else we might do, or talk to our friend, you know, eating popcorn, watching the show, <laughs> and surfing the web, you know, and whatever else we do. You know, and then eventually, fortunately, we get exhausted, so at least we can sleep. You know, until we can't, you know. And then, so it's that, there's that sort of desperate quality just below the surface in a lot of our lives a lot of the time. And we just get, okay, that's not working. I'm starting to have some real faith based on my own experience that that doesn't work. Well, what is this sense of me who needs to be happy? Let me get interested in it. And the Buddha says once, you know, this stress that we begin to wake up to, it does one of two things. Either we freak out about it and, and get angry or get upset and beat our breath and lament, or we get interested. Does anybody know anything about this suffering? You know, we start looking and thinking and reflecting about the experience of this existential uneasiness. And this is the work, the contemplation of view. And again, when we're overwhelmed in life, it's not so easy to do this effectively. It works best when there's a lot of steadiness in our lives. Because that allows for that investigation to have some real integrity, a real sense of honesty. Because when we're desperate, we don't really want an answer, we just want belief. You know, just give me some relief. I don't care if the long-term consequences, you know how it is when you have a bad, like, bronchial infection, I don't care if too many people are using antibiotics. Just give me antibiotics. So we go to our doctor. We just want to be relieved. We don't care about the long-term consequences of everybody using antibiotics. We're ready to be done with this infection. And, you know, and that happens in so many ways where we, we don't worry about the long-term 
we just want a little relief. That when we feel more content, more stable, more basic happiness in life, then we get interested in the long term. Because we realize, you know, I've got it pretty well. I live in Minneapolis. I've got a decent job. I'm healthy. I've got a good partner. I have good friends. And yet, my heart is still uneasy. You know? I still don't know how to handle loss and death. I haven't solved that problem. You know? And so we get interested in our existential situation and not to investigate. So we have a choice. You know, we can, in that moment when we've done a lot of this purification work and worked with our mind and worked with our relationships, we have a, two choices. We can just glide through life. Life is working pretty well. Don't rock the boat. Which is great until it isn't great anymore. You know, until something arises, which it will. Right? There's no avoiding death. There's no, no avoiding loss. Let alone all the other things that can happen. Difficult things that can happen. To even people who have it pretty good. So we can either just try to glide through life hoping that the inevitable won't happen, which it will, or we can get interested. And generally, people who show up at a place like Common Ground have gotten interested. What is this uneasiness in the heart about? And we begin to know that we, we kind of welcome it in. We don't want to run from it or hide from it, distract yourself. We actually want to inhabit that space of anxiety, uneasiness, however subtle, however pervasive it is. We kind of want to live with it. Because then we begin to, like, that changes, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it really changes our perspective. Now it's something being known. So instead of it being me who wants to be happy, it's something that's being observed with mindfulness, with wisdom. And then that's when we can begin to have the insight of cause and effect. Like, when it's present, this is how life is. When it's absent, this is how life is. And we begin to discover, I mean, it's an awakening. This process is an awakening. We begin to awaken to the possibility of not being burdened by wrong view. What in Buddhism we call wrong view. That sense of separation is wrong view. It's a very deep, pervasive cultural habit. It's something that's learned. And then we get caught in it because it has a feedback mechanism that like I described a few minutes ago. So we need a, a very clear pointing out, which are the teachings of the Buddha, and then we have to get interested. We have to take the teachings and use them to reflect on our own experience, as I've described. So I'll leave it here. We have about eight minutes. It would be nice to hear anybody's comments from your own practice that you might have or questions before we end at 8.30. What comes to mind? Yeah. Um, so, I'm trying to figure out the, how do you observe yourself? It seems that there's that separation that comes when you observe yourself. There's so much talk about trying to harmonize and bring yourself together. So I get confused when I try and split myself off from my ego and watch my ego and my thoughts. But somehow I'm supposed to be one at the same time? That's right. Yeah. Well, and it takes a little practice. <clears throat> Initially, as we're getting started in the practice, the observer or the witness 
becomes synonymous with the self. So I'm going to witness, I'm going to observe my breath. And in a way, we energetically create a sense of a somebody observing the breath, or somebody observing the walking, or somebody observing, like, how I'm interacting in the world. Like, I'm here, and I'm observing, like, am I doing a good job in this Dharma talk or not? And that's inevitable. But over time, you can realize that the observing, the knowing, you don't actually have to do that. But try not to know the sound of my voice. Can you stop knowing it? Do you have to make any particular effort to know the sound of my voice? So, and the thing about knowing is, it's also nature. And the thought that the sense that I have to do the knowing is just a habit. It's a construction of the mind. So our mind is pretending, literally, pretending that it's doing the knowing. But actually, knowing is just nature. There's some aspect of nature that is knowing. It's not personal. I am not personally trying to know, nor are you, although it seems that way because it's our habit to, to, to interpret our experience as if I am the somebody over here, you know, that's me, is doing the knowing. But knowing is just happening. But it takes a little while for the, it's really like a confidence that knowing is just doing its own thing. And so in a way, we're learning to rest in this, the nature of knowing. You could call it the nature of the mind. The nature of the mind is luminous. It's knowing. It's awareness. And we can learn to trust that, that it takes time. And initially, as we're beginning, we kind of, the ego owns that knowing. You know, it's, well, I must be doing it. Somebody's doing it. It's got to be me. Who else is there? So, you know, and we think we're doing the knowing. But that's the, that part of the mind, that e, what we call the ego, that's what it does. It owns things. You know, that's me. And uh, so you can't stop that. And so it is a little awkward at first. That's why the stability really helps. When, when things get really harmonious and the, and the mind gets really calm, you know, the, one of the qualities of calm is stillness. And so that neurotic ego activity, it gets really still. I mean, relatively speaking, it doesn't cease to exist, but it's pretty quiet. And so then the knowing is more pure. It's just happening. But the ego is just, it doesn't bother to sort of own the knowing. And so that's when you can do that more easily, where the knowing can know the view that's operating in the mind without some feeling awkward about it. But initially, Christina, it is awkward. But knowing, and this is where information can be really useful. Having the information in your mind that you're not the knower is really useful. That, that there is knowing, but it's not you or anybody. It's just knowing. But that doesn't mean it isn't a beautiful, powerful refuge. It's absolutely something to learn to trust. Because by um, sort of learning to trust it, like to become the knowing, like the definition of the Buddha as a practice is the one who knows. So we're learning to take refuge in the Buddha, this quality of mind that knows. Because what that does is it unhooks the mind from being the doer which is, causes a lot of problems. So the first step is for us to unhook from being the doer so we become the knower, even though it's a little neurotic, as you suggest, you know, because then we become the one who's observing or the one who's witnessing what's going on. 
But that will purify on its own. Because part of being the observer, we start to notice how heavy the observer is. Right? Well, now the observer is noticing the observer. Well, that can't be the observer then, can it? It's something that's being known. We're knowing the weight of being the observer. And so all of a sudden then, that's that purification process where the knowing becomes lighter and lighter. And eventually it's just nature now. Yeah, one more. Talk for one more. Then. Um, you had given a talk once, and I don't know if it was Armstrong or that other guy, who had the nine-minute turbo meditation. Yeah, just a ghosting. Yeah. And ghosting. And um, the first one was listening. So who's listening? And I went around and around with that for maybe a week, and today I think I finally got it. It was like, okay, who's listening? I'm listening. So
So it feels good to be grateful to all the women, all the men through the centuries who have done their practice. They had challenging lives, busy lives. But they did their practice as best they could, shared what they learned generation by generation. These teachings of the Buddha have been passed down. We get to be the grateful beneficiaries of the, the stream of human compassion and wisdom. So now it's our turn to do the best we can in our lives to be awake, to be interested in suffering and the end of suffering as a way of taking care of our own lives, but also as a way of taking care of the whole world. So may our practice lead to real peace in our hearts and in the world. And thanks again, everyone, for being here tonight. Always nice to come together and practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.